Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. Hey, what is up, everyone? It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. It is our ongoing series with Medical Association of Georgia, and I'm joined in studio by Dr. Robin Drettler of Infectious Disease Specialist of Atlanta. He also serves as a physician for the Wound Center at DeKalb Medical Center. I appreciate you making some time to sit in with us today, Dr. Drettler. The pleasure is mine. We'll talk about your personal evolution, and we'll kind of get into an infectious disease a little bit in, in particular from your professional perspective. But what, as you were going through uh, trying to decide, what do I want to be? I'm going to go to medicine. And then from there, you decided you would want to tackle some of these uh, very challenging diseases and infections. Uh, what made you want to go down that path? It's a little more complicated than that. I started out in college as an English major. I was going to travel around the world like Hemingway writing books. Um, the problem with that is I didn't write well enough. <laughs> so I decided instead to try the sciences. And I was okay at the sciences. Went into uh, research. To be successful in bench research, you have to have a great ability to overcome failures. Those should roll off your back. And successes should bore you forever. That was not for me. But it did not work. So I left that and decided to find myself, went to South America uh, to learn Spanish and travel around and ran out of money in Bolivia off the Altiplano. <laughs> and so got a job. And at that point, my Spanish was pretty good. And the job was in this clinic on the Altiplano, government doctor, and the books were all in English. And the doctor wanted some help so I could go look stuff up in the books in English and then come back. And my Spanish was serviceable, serviceable and his English was excellent. I helped see patients who had infections that could be prevented or cured, whose lives could be made a whole lot better. I said, all right, I'm going to travel around the world like Albert Schweitzer and cure people. <laughs> and so, so I came back and went to Tufts uh, University Medical School, which was the perfect environment for me and is very strong in infectious diseases. And that was the plan until I met my wife, Muffy, as a, as a third-year medical student, and she was not so portable. So I ended up uh... staying in one place and have the infections come to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a really cool story. I, I, I love hearing from physicians and other professionals in, as well as to how did you end up here? You, the, the, the story that you're telling there is actually quite interesting. So use that as a transition because obviously when you were uh, in that place and in, in, in those life experiences and you were just getting exposed to infections that can occur and particularly affecting populations, as you say, that weren't very well protected based on a host of things like just sanitation and, you know, different services like that, that we somewhat take it uh, for granted here. I'm sure it made a big impression on you, but what all is encompassed, you know, obviously infections, but things that you may, may or may not think about when it comes to infectious disease, like I'm getting ready to travel abroad to a place that has a risk for exposure to certain things that I don't get exposure to, and you can help protect me from that. So it's not necessarily always treating a terrible infection. You might be preventing some as well. True. Uh, well, we do have a travel clinic to advise people about the vaccines and how to not get sick and, of course, to treat them if they didn't come beforehand, which happens more frequently than you think. Uh, but infectious disease isn't really just infections. It is, we are seen as the diagnosticians. We're supposed to figure out what's the puzzle because 
if you have an infection, sepsis will kill you quickly. So we were trained to cover for the immediate crisis of infection and then figure out what's going on. And it's evolved since then. I would say that 40% of my infection consults are not infected at all. I see the patients say, this is not infection, stop the antibiotics and do the workup to redirect and get the correct diagnosis. And then the, the other 60% are infections in just ordinary people who have something common or something unusual or something that's not responding properly. Usually, even if it's a straightforward case, there are many different antibiotics one can use and we tend to be able to narrow it down to the most specific. You know, a scalpel is instead of a sledgehammer to treat your infection. The narrower your treatment, the less likely you're going to have side effects, diarrhea, and unnecessary complications and make your own natural bacteria resistant to other antibiotics. Before I started the Top Docs radio show a little over two years ago, I was with a medical practice that focused on wounds and hyperbaric medicine as a component of that. And part of the challenge that I faced, my role in that situation was to meet with physicians in the community to help them understand when do you think about this. And the, the challenge that I experienced in that way and the practice as a whole was that to a certain level, particularly to an untrained eye that's delved a little more deeply into that type of illness or injury, uh, it seems like it's fairly innocuous. I'm just going to come back, come in and I'll clean it and see me two days or see me in next week and continue to treat it, not necessarily actually be making progress. When it comes to infectious disease, what we saw in wound and hyperbaric medicine was typically somebody messed around with it on their own for a period of time before they finally sent it. And by that time, the, the progress of the challenge has made so much advance that it's very difficult to treat. You're talking about the fact that as many as four out of 10 patients that come to you, when someone finally says, hey, you better go over and uh, see the, the folks at the infectious disease specialty clinic, they've already prescribed medication and, and got them on a regimen that when you see the patient as a trained infectious disease doctor, you're like, oh, this is either an inaccurate prescription for the drug they need, or they don't even need the antibiotic. When would you advise, given the fact that many of our listeners are physicians and peers of yours, when would you advise the medical community to think about an infectious disease specialist versus I'm an internal medicine physician, I can prescribe an antibiotic, I'm good to go. When do I need to hand it over to you? If you are not sure of your diagnosis, that's, that's a good way to start, to say, okay, let me send it to someone to help sort out. It looks like infection, but it doesn't really look like infection. Or if you try treating with antibiotic and it doesn't work, then say, okay, that's time for infectious disease. I have an example of a young man a couple of years ago who had a mild case of rheumatoid juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and had been put on one of the new tumor necrosis factor inhibitors, which are very, very broadly immune suppressive. Uh, then he went to visit his father who happened to live in Columbia, the country, not, not the college. And he was a really actually cute kid and just a charming young man. And, but he 
was a 14-year-old, so he swam in the waters. He was bitten by a dog. He climbed in the trees. He rolled in the sand on the beaches. And he had this little painless nodule on his ankle and a little bit of low-grade fever. It didn't feel great when he came home. And so he went to his physician, not a decap physician, went to his physician, and the physician put him on Bactrim, common antibiotic, thinking it was staph, although staph is always painful, but it was a painless nodule. Um, but that was what he chose. And after a week, the ulcer was, um, the wound had sort of ulcerated, didn't hurt, um, and he had a couple new lesions. Um, so he decided to put him on another week of the same thing because it had failed, so we'll try it again. <laughs> so then, then uh, meanwhile, he saw his... Um, rheumatologist who fortunately stopped the tumor necrosis factor inhibitor. Um, it'll take three months to go away, but it, he didn't at least make it worse. As the young man got more lesions and more ulcers, uh, he went to a third physician who decided to put him on another antibiotic. Um, again, this was a painless, very atypical ulcerating wound from someone who had just come back from Colombia. Might think a little more about what to do with that. And so he, after four cycles of antibiotics, all which had failed, a month and a half had passed, he was referred to me. And at that point, he clearly had an illness called leishmaniasis, which is a, a very disfiguring progressive illness, uh, usually it's just local, but he had been a tumor necrosis factor inhibitor, so he had it disseminated. We were, ended up uh, putting him on IV amphotericin B, which fortunately stopped everything just as he had a thumbprint lesion uh, on his chin before before he was permanently disfigured, although he's got lots of scars on his body. But, but uh, you know, that's an extreme example, but it's generally... If it isn't what you're doing isn't working, doing the same thing over and over again is not a great idea. I, I certainly feel you there. When it comes to trying to decide in terms of, you know, I know that colleagues are going to be thinking, well, I'm trying to manage healthcare dollars. So I don't want to involve a specialist if I don't have to, uh, that sort of thing. But uh, time is of the essence in many of these cases. So how long, how much time do you think you should give something like that before you start to see, particularly when you're starting to involve an antibiotic, for example, how much time would you anticipate before things start to begin to trend back towards where you would want them to be? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where we say, okay, we're, we're responding. We're going to watch this for a little bit longer or not because it's not working. Yeah. It depends on how sick the person is. If, if we're talking outpatient, mildly ill, you know, four or five days, you should see a clear response. If, if it isn't better, four or five days, uh, you need to rethink your diagnosis. Uh, if someone's very sick, then we should be involved right up front. Are there particular studies that you're doing that allow you to so quickly understand, oh, this doesn't need this antibiotic at all that this person is on that we didn't do before they got there? It's still ultimately the history and physical. Talking with the patient, getting a detailed history, go over the physical and say, does this make sense with what the diagnosis is? And a lot of times it really isn't a, a good fit. But of course, you know, I've been seeing patients for a very long time. And also if all you see is slightly unusual cases, you get very good at picking out what's relevant in the slightly unusual or very unusual case.
When it comes to the specialty as a whole, and you look around the landscape of people coming out of medical school like you did a, a few years ago, um, what does the picture look like for the specialty? Are people saying, I want to be infectious disease specialists, or are you needing to find a way to communicate, hey, we need your help, we need your expertise, more people need to think about it? Well, that's a big crisis right now in infectious diseases. The last two years, many programs didn't fill. I think last year, 60% of the programs didn't fill. The year before that, it was 40% didn't match. Um, at prestigious places included, like uh, Mass General, Johns Hopkins, Washington University, it's a real concern because the need for infectious diseases uh, practitioners has increased, but there's several problems that discourage people from going in. First, we work long hours. You know, the hospitalist, if you're an internist and you get out of training, you get hired as a hospitalist, you get hired at a higher salary than we get, you work seven days on and seven days off, which is a very nice schedule. We work seven days on, seven days on, seven days on, then seven days on. Um, we have to cover our patients on the weekends. I love what I do 10 hours a day. By 12, I do not. And it's, it's still, it's in the older tradition of medicine of long hours. On the other hand, we also rank on the highest rating of job satisfaction. So we're, we're the lowest paid, and the highest job satisfaction. But when people in training look at that, they say not, oh, I love what I do. They say, I want to earn a decent income. And I'm paid as a infectious disease doctor exactly the same as an internist pays, but every single case was too difficult for an internist. So I get the more complicated patients with the, and I have a worse schedule. And I, like I said, I love it. I find total satisfaction. My daughter is a fellow at Embry right now going into it as are her two roommates uh, from medical school because the passion apparently was a little infectious. But uh, when people look at the numbers, say, well, lifestyle, quality of life uh, may eclipse the joy of being able to save a couple of lives a, day, a week. I've been talking with Dr. Robin Drettler of the Infectious Disease Specialist of Atlanta, a practice located at DeKalb Medical Center over in Decatur. And uh, in addition to that work in the office, you, as we talked about briefly before, you, you do some work with the wound program. How does that fit into your practice? I know from my own experience in the, in the wound program, infectious disease is basically uh, their they're, they're like the wound physician themselves. They're, they're an, a necessary component. By the time somebody has a wound that's not healing well, it's very likely there's some sort of need for what you do. Yes. Well, again, it's, it's first making the correct diagnosis. Uh, what we first got into wound care because we kept being sent cases of chronic cellulitis. There is no such diagnosis. People would have been on four or five uh, courses of antibiotics for their red swollen leg that was a varicose vein particularly people get admitted all the time at hospitals everywhere for bilateral cellulitis, which is bilateral <laughs> varicose veins, and you know, defies sense that this would be an infection. But we see it all the time. In addition, there's people who come in with red nodules of erythema nodosum, and you know, that's maybe an infection. There's a lot of causes of that. It can be from sarcoid, it can be from t tuberculosis, but when we, we can recognize it and then uh, pursue it back, hydradenitis is another common thing that we see that doesn't respond to antibiotics. 
It responds to um, immune suppressives and other treatments to keep bacterial counts down. We see decubitus ulcers all the time, which are uh, very challenging to heal. The thing that a wound care center offers that our office doesn't is there's a lot of specialty projects to he products to heal these now. The problem is the products are very expensive and they won't reimburse the physician in his office. So they will reimburse the hospital. So we need the hospital to own a wound care center and then we can see these more complicated patients and make a big difference using artificial skin grafts or, or various products. Uh, one product that I've been very impressed with is a, something called Restore Silver. Silver releases from this sheet of Restore Silver, releases nanogram amounts of silver, which are an antiseptic, not toxic, toxic to the tissues. And for areas that tend to have heavy bacterial load, loads, hips, lower abdomen, you can put that on and keep the bacteria from building up while you get the wound to heal because a heavy load of bacteria, nothing's going to heal while that's going on. And systemic antibiotics aren't going to work that well and will have greater side effects. Much like what we were talking about with regards to uh, a physician working to manage what they believe to be an infection for a period of time and it's not really showing improvement. So maybe I try a different medication ultimately, as you say, sometimes two or three weeks going by or more in some cases before I send them over to you. Similar situations occur pretty heavily in the wound care space. With, for, for you working with the wound care program as you do, what advice would you give to your colleagues around wounds? Because again, when we're talking, particularly when you have a diabetic component to it or an arterial component to it, the, the, the limb could seriously be at, threat, at, at, at risk for loss, and then mortality is pretty significant. So how long should I mess with this wound before I send them to you? Because just because it looks better doesn't mean it's getting better. It's got to be shrinking. It doesn't need to look better. Yeah, what I'd suggest <laughs> is measure the dimensions of the wounds so that you have in your record what the size was. And if you go two weeks with no progress, it's time for some of these more sophisticated products. It may not be, your diagnosis may be absolutely right, but if you and your office can't offer these additional treatments, uh, the patient's not likely to get better in a lot of cases. I know from the work in the wound program that the products when the patient would come in to have a visit the 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 cost to the practice of the products they were applying as you say were pretty surprising very high even just the dressings themselves not to mention some of the gels and different things that you can utilize so i agree with you that when you're dealing with a wound that's not shrinking regardless of whether it's diabetic or not send it over when you have access to a wound program which Thankfully, our community here around the Atlanta metro area is much like it is in Decatur. There are programs around that you can get to, but I think that many times our colleagues out there hang on to them just a little bit too long. Well, no one likes to admit failure, but uh, I think the patients usually appreciate if you say, we're not making the kind of progress, progress we should, and there is a facility that can offer things that a private office cannot, that it has to be uh, facility-based. had a young woman... Um, uh, two weeks ago, who was, refer was referred to wound care, or I guess she self-referred to wound care. Uh, she had had a baby and had a pretty bad tear. It had not been, again, not a cap. And there had been a second surgical procedure to try to get it to heal, but that was unsuccessful. And so she was extremely uncomfortable. It came to have me take a look and see what I, as a wound care center, could do. And this was a 
very high bacterial load. Um, that was why she was so sore and it couldn't heal, because the perineum is going to be loaded with bacteria. And a strip of Restore Silver applied every three days with a little bit of calcium alginate, uh, absorbs 100 times its weight in um, moisture, no, 10 times its weight in moisture, uh, changed uh, every time she uh, went to the bathroom, took care of it in two weeks. It was completely painless gone. And this had been about a month of her being very uncomfortable. Yes. Within the first week, she was much better, but the second week it, it was resolved. But that Restore Silver, we, you know, the sheet is very expensive, and I couldn't afford to have that in my, in my office. And the calcium alginate simile, it's 10 bucks a sheet. The fact that the hospital owns it and can provide the supplies makes me able to do things that just you can't do outside of a wound care center. And I think that as, as physicians that are going to be in the community as the front line, potentially referring a patient for uh, care at a center like this, um, I, I, I don't think it's a failure of your ability if you're if the equipment that you have and the things that you have at your disposal to be able to manage it aren't enough to make it heal, that's I don't think it's a failure of treatment to say, I need to go over to the to the next level up and and they've got some bigger guns that they can use to get this fixed fast. Right. I think that's I think that's appropriate care. That's what I want my doctor to do for me. I, I agree. I, mean, I think that you know, when I need, you have a patient needs surgery, I don't do the surgery. You know, I think the patient uh, appreciates that you know where to go next, that this is something that needs uh, specialization and you knew where to refer them. Especially if taking something off of me is the potential outcome here. I want to know, I want to know we're kind of getting this going uh, before you want to take the tip of my toe or God forbid more of my foot or leg off with that. So trying to get somebody in timely is a, is a certain, uh, certainly a key uh, thought point when you're managing patients that have wounds that aren't getting better in a timely fashion. And when it comes to traveling abroad, you mentioned the fact that that's a component um, obviously Zika has made the news as a, as a travel disease of concern, but I'm sure that things like malaria and all of those other diseases are around. How, how much should I worry about it when I'm going where? Well, it depends on where you're going. That's the whole point of a travel clinic. There you know, certainly are vaccines you want to be up to date on. Are, there are countries that if you're going, you want to be taking malaria prophylaxis. Um, and even if you were born in East Africa and immigrated here, you lose the immunity you had to, uh, to malaria. So you go back, you're going to get sick. You need to be taking prophylaxis. Interesting. So once you developed it, it's, it's not something that persists. No, no, it's a short-term immunity. So mm. people who live there and survive past five generally have been infected and they're sort of chronically infected, but in a stable situation, when you go back after a five-year or more hiatus, your immunity is gone, which has been why it's been so difficult to make a vaccine. Interesting. And, of course, if we as Westerners have never had malaria go, we can get very, very sick from malaria. But there's yellow fever. There's a variety of other illnesses. It's also the, the travel clinic does multiple levels. You can just say, I looked up on the CDC website and I want these vaccines and we can provide that. He said, I want you to review and do these vaccines make sense or some I should have, some I shouldn't. Um, and then there's the third level where, where you meet with our educator and say, how do I avoid getting sick? How do I avoid getting diarrhea? What kind of precautions should I take? And uh, are there 
precautions in terms of crime and alerts that are going on in this country, because we can give you a printout of uh, things to be aware of, the embassy number, things to have the vacation tend to be better, and just some counseling, things like if you go to South America, well, most of the, most of the uh, developing word now, you don't wear a watch. Don't wear a watch. Not a cheap watch. You don't wear a watch. Because if you're wearing it, you're attracting someone to come and grab it off your wrist. And you're identifying yourself as not from there or, and not savvy. You go to Buenos Aires, you'll notice that none of the women even wear wedding rings. Because there's so much snatch and grab, just you can't. You can wear dramatic costume jewelry if you feel naked without something in your ears. But things that are obviously not a value. Interesting. When it comes to thinking about having a consult conversation with a travel practice like you're talking about, are there general rules of thought if you're going to Africa, going to South America, going to tropical regions? I mean, how do, how do you approach, this is when you should think about getting with us to make sure that you have the protection that you need? Well, if you're going to really any developing country, and have not been before and are not an experienced traveler, you definitely should have the whole talk. Um, and make sure your vaccines are up to date. Uh, make sure you know what you've had from your primary care um, and then get the additional vaccines that are advised. And you really want to go at least a month before so that because the vaccines take between two and four weeks to be fully effective. Then if you've traveled a lot, you just want to make sure your vaccines are updated. That's what I was going to ask. When it comes to the, the vaccines that you take for travel, you mentioned the fact that malaria will give you a period of protection. Uh, are the others the same way that they, they would potentially need to be boosted uh, in a period of time? Yes. Well, uh, typhoid, if you get the pills, it's five years. It's two years for the shot rabies, uh, you'd want an antibody. If you're going to someplace where you're exposed to rabies or are likely to have contact with rabies, you check it about two years. Yellow fever is 10 years. And just want to make sure you're up to date, uh, age appropriately for, with your pneumococcal vaccine, with influenza vaccine when you travel, meningococcal vaccine if you're going to the meningitis belt. When it comes to protecting yourself from flu, how big of a deal is that, uh, a flu vaccine? Even if you're not traveling, just that kind of immunization, you think that's something you should do every year? Yes. It, it, vaccines have been the greatest achievement of modern medicine. It, there's no question that, um, in fact, because a vaccine is part of the real world reason for the population explosion in the world. You know, People used to die from all of the childhood illnesses, measles, mumps, uh, rubella, even varicella, typhoid, you know, uh, was was a common scourge, and you know, cholera. I mean, there are enormous numbers of illness, but the childhood vaccines uh, you should definitely get. I mean, not getting your measles vaccine is just foolish. The whooping cough used to kill people. Um, it still does. In fact, we're having an epidemic. Yeah, uh, see them advertising country. for it now that our vaccine, which we thought was lifelong, has waning immunity. So if you haven't had it as an adult, you want to get it because there's, a, you, there's an age at which the baby can't get it and the grandparent can kill their grandchild if, the, if they have a minor cough because they don't, didn't have good immunity to uh, pertussis and the baby will die of, of 
whooping cough, like it's you know pre-vaccine era. And influenza, of course, is the most common, highly contagious infection. Thirty thousand people on average die a year from it in this country, and it is preventable with a vaccine. The vaccine's not great; it's only about seventy percent efficacy. Uh, and less effective for the more fragile, the very young and the very elderly. So the reason is not just to protect yourself, but really to protect your loved ones. Would you want to get influenza or have it incubating over Thanksgiving dinner and kill your grandmother? True. I mean, it, and it's so easy and insurance covers it. It's, you just walk in, it's very simple and very right. quick. Not a really good reason not to do it. Dr. Robin Drettler from Infectious Disease Specialists of Atlanta over at DeKalb Medical Center sitting in with us today, learning a little bit about infectious disease as a specialty, some things to think about if you travel abroad, uh, Zika being one of those things. How big of a deal is it here? I, when I first started talking about Zika, it was kind of like, ah, it doesn't make you all that sick. You know, sometimes you don't even know it's a big deal, you know, that you're, you're, you've been exposed. Many people apparently are are free of symptoms, or at least their symptoms are so minor they don't even really notice it. How big of a deal is it? What should we be thinking about here? Well, for an adult past their childbearing years, uh, it's a minor illness most of the time. There is a higher rate of Guillain-Barre, which is a paralytic illness. Interestingly, it's not like the previous Guillain-Barre, which can, is about six per million incidents and seems to be associated with a, a few viral infections and come six months after. This happens directly. This is when you get Zika, you may also get Guillain-Barre, and it's about a tenfold increase. So it's not the extremely rare, this debate of whether it's tenfold or a hundredfold, but it still would be very uncommon, but it's a direct neuropathy. But even if you don't get full Guillain-Barre, you can get a neuropathy that feels like pins and needles that Last, there was a speaker at ID Week two weeks ago who was from Brazil and he had gotten the neuropathy and he said it was unbelievably horrible. He still had it. His, uh, it was sort of a burning, stabbing sensation so that he was saying, this is much worse than has been thought. And the, the, for the people of childbearing years, it's also looking like it is much worse than we originally thought. Thought first, it's been established that up to 180 days, men carry the semen at a hundredfold higher level than in the blood. So <laughs> semen is extremely contagious. That not just one percent of women who have symptoms will have uh, babies that have microcephaly. Those are the ones who have the worst damage. But it does look like. If you get it while you're pregnant, even if you don't have symptoms, there will be effects. It is a neurotropic virus. It damages nerves. Nothing good can come of it. So for the for the developing world, this is a huge disaster. Enormous numbers of damaged and partially mm. damaged and mildly damaged uh, children while this first epidemic wave goes through. For this country, less because you know, Zika... It, thrives on the two viruses, uh, two mosquito types that are adapted to humans, and they're adapted to trash and water and things where there's stagnant water. And we're pretty good in this country about getting rid of our trash. It's another, just another reason not to litter. We've got some pretty good-sized tire farms around some neighborhoods around here, yeah. for sure. Those would be a big problem. Those yeah. need to be cleaned up. One of the things that I've heard recently is that even though it's not really getting a lot of play in 
broadcast media, uh, there's apparently a surprising number of new cases of HIV and AIDS today that, I mean, at a fairly alarming rate, particularly um, among college-age people, I guess, even here in our community, right here around the Atlanta area, we have several college campuses where there are, I guess, a number of people that are dealing with this. So what what has been your experience on the infectious disease side of things, and what are your thoughts in terms of what we should do about this? Uh, we have seen no decrease in incidence. We are, we are seeing probably two to three new HIV patients in our office a week, and they tend to be younger and younger. And uh, certainly in the hospital, my daughter, who is at Emory and Grady doing her training, uh, tells me that that is nothing. What we're seeing is nothing, that there is an enormous flood of new patients. It's because people are no longer afraid, they're also not being cautious and Younger people particularly feel invulnerable. Younger people who may go with an older man will get infected more likely. There's multiple different factors. Uh, First is that uh, we're a more sex-oriented society, and so sexuality without concern about consequences is emphasized. Second is that men tend to lose their thinking ability when all the blood rushes to other parts of their body. And so when you have a man and a woman, usually a woman is saying, I don't want to get pregnant, are you out of your mind? Whereas two guys, there's no one with sense involved. Plus for the population that isn't getting married, uh, it's a straight numbers game. With the decreased rate of marriage does not mean people are going to give up sex. Of course not. So if you were to start sexual activity at age 20, no one would think you were wild. Well, most people wouldn't think you were wild at this, in this society at this time. If you had one partner for, say, six months every two years, again, that would be pretty, pretty tame by most people's standards. Well, if you get to 40, having done that, you say, well, I only had 10 partners. Well, if all of the people you were with had been no wilder than you, that's 3.9 million people in that group. So there have been a huge number of opportunities for it to get transmitted to you. So the answer is, of course, using condoms 100% of the time until you're tested and your partner's tested and you've decided on monogamy. But that is not happening as much as it should. When I was in high school, when AIDS and HIV first came onto the scene and onto our consciousness uh, in the States, uh, clearly we were kind of freaked out about it and, and it really kind of caused, I think, a measure of caution and they thought about it, right? Um, I wonder why it's faded in terms of it's being discussed when it's still so prevalent. And, and I, I think that you talked about the fact that in many cases, you know, when, when pregnancy is not a concern, for whatever reason, you feel like, ah, oh, no problem, we're good to go. Talk about how, who is at risk, just because you maybe, I think at the time, it was really heavily being associated in the homosexual community, and particularly with men. And so I think that there was a measure of, well, I'm not homosexual, I don't, I don't have homosexual sexual relations, so I'm fine. But that's not quite accurate. You're still exposed even with heterosexual sex. True. And that's, you know, we see a lot of older women, you know, uh, 30s and 40s, 
for the reasons I just said, who are heterosexual and infected. Similarly, men who have been infected by the older women. Um, bisexuality is also a lot more common yeah. than you would think um, or than we used to believe. And with our acceptance of uh, bisexuality and, and you know, uh, actually healthy sexuality is a great idea, we've taken off some of the restraints of people having multiple contacts. And the problem is we still need to remind them that you still have to be careful. We see about 250 cases of syphilis in our stable HIV population a year. Probably we've seen 10 cases of gonorrhea in the last three weeks. And these are people who thought they were monogamous, but it turns out their partner was not. And of course, other sexually transmitted diseases encourage the further transmission of HIV. It, it uh, definitely increases transmission. So again, it's one of those where you have to protect yourself. If anyone who would have intercourse with you without taking precautions with you, because they don't know where you've been for sure, has done that with other people. And until you're in a monogamous relationship, where you're confident you can trust that it's a monogamous relationship and you both get tested, you should always use condoms. And condoms, I was going to ask, the, are they, how effective are they in terms of preventing exposure, you know, it, or actually contracting those types of diseases? They're, uh, you know, not everything, but for most sexually transmitted diseases, they're very effective as long as they don't break. The problem is that uh, you have to use them properly. You have to pinch the end or get one with a reservoir tip because if you just put it on tightly, it's just going to break when you ejaculate. So the first is most people don't, most men don't know how to use it or embarrassed to ask. And so, you know, you want to tell your, tell your children, this is how you use it. Tell your daughters if they're going to have intercourse, this is how the boy should put it on so it doesn't break. And, you know, you pinch it at the end or, again, you buy one with the reservoir trip, tip and you don't get something that is too small because you're, or, you know, you want it to be tight. So, yeah, I don't want it to be so tight. You want it to be a comfortable fit with a little space. The other thing is, of course, if you are at risk for getting HIV, you can use PrEP. Um, that's uh, PrEP is prophylaxis. I'm forgetting exactly what the acronym stands for. But it has been shown that if you take Truveda, which is the uh, drug for trap, one pill, PrEP, one pill once a day, it will decrease your likelihood of getting HIV by 80%. Interesting. You just have to take it every day. The problem is if you don't take it every day and get infected, and then you start taking it, you will create a very resistant virus that makes it more difficult to treat. So you have to plan ahead and say, I'm committed to this. There's a lot of responsibility it. on that patient to be compliant. I know they're working on a vaccine for the HIV virus. In fact, one of the companies right here in Smyrna is one of those that is working hard to develop a vaccine. What are you seeing around the potential efficacy for such a vaccine around HIV? Uh, and then also, I wanted to get your thoughts on whether or not uh, it makes sense to have your daughter immunized for HPV, because you hear a lot about that as well. And there's some discussion uh, as to whether or not I should do that or not. Um, I'll answer the second part first. HPV vaccination, absolutely. Unless you plan on your child being a nun or a priest, they should get vaccinated. And vaccinating when they're 10, 11, 12 you know, makes it a certainty that they'll be protected. HPV causes 
cervical cancer, anal cancer, rarely penile cancer, just also causes warts, which are unappealing. And why would you not have your child protected from this? It, it makes no sense to not do this. Saying that giving them a vaccine is going to make them promiscuous is uh, hard for me to understand. And uh, it just, they will have a partner at some time. You don't know for sure that they will choose a virgin as their partner. It, you know, no matter what your feelings about religion and chastity, your child still may not marry a virgin. They should be vaccinated. The second part, the HIV vaccine is tough to make. They're working on it and you know, some brilliant people are devoting their time, but something that the body itself has not been able to figure out immunity to is gonna be very difficult to make a vaccine. There've been several, I think we're at 25 or 35 million infections a handful of people who have tolerated it for a long period of time, you know, the non-progressors, really very, very few that have formed full immunity, that, that indicates that it is very difficult for us to escape this virus. So I have no doubt that eventually someone will have that aha, just like with hepatitis C, someone just looked at it differently and suddenly this nightmare to treat is a easy to treat, eight weeks, no side effects, one pill a day course, but it's hard to predict when someone's going to have that eureka moment. I know Occam's razor is something that you're a fan of in the way that you approach medical practice. Talk about how you utilize that thought process when you approach your, your work. Well, Occam's razor is the simplest answer is the most likely. Often when I'm looking at a, a case and, and knowing right away it's not an infection is when there's three infectious diagnoses. The patient is here because they have a cellulitis, UTI, and uh, pneumonia. That doesn't happen. That makes no <laughs> sense. You don't get unrelated coincidental things. So Occam's razor is it all has to tie in. And that's actually why I think my being an English major and liking to tell stories has made me uniquely able in infectious diseases because I want to tell a story and a good story has a beginning a middle, and an end that brings everything together and ties all the loose ends up. And that is the right diagnosis. I recently uh, was asked to see a patient who had about two, three weeks of diarrhea, then her eyes became red, and then she uh, got uh, swelling on her leg. I was asked to see her for uh, cellulitis and conjunctivitis. I went and interviewed her, and uh, in the course of taking a good history, I learned that she had had uh, ulcerative colitis 13 years before. And clearly what she had was a recurrence of her ulcerative colitis, and the scleritis that goes with ulcerative colitis, and the nodules on her leg were not cellulitis, but erythema nodosa. And treating ulcerative colitis is what she needed. She did not need antibiotics. She needed rheumatologic treatment. <laughs> well, I, I think I have... I would agree with you that simpler is probably going to be the better solution in most cases. And I, I think that's intriguing how that you weave that into your approach with regards to diagnosing and treating your patients. Do you have some contact information about the practice in case some, someone, whether a patient or a loved one of somebody that's listening might need somebody, or if I'm a physician that might need to refer someone over for an evaluation? Sure. Um, our phone number is 404 297 
888-900-9755. Our website is idsatlanta.com. And we're happy, happy to see, happy to help. Give us a call. Well, I appreciate you making some time to join us here in the studio. I know you all stay very busy. So uh, taking the time to come and share this information with our listeners is certainly appreciated. Um, if you've not done so already in the upper left-hand corner of the show page, you'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you to the iTunes store where the Top Docs Radio Show podcast lives. And you can subscribe to us. We hope you do that. And we hope you turn around and share this information with your social media networks. Put it out on LinkedIn and Facebook and those platforms. You may just be putting some information in the hands of somebody. Maybe they're getting ready to go out of the country and you share this with them and they get some protection that helps them all come home happy and safe. So we'll say thanks in advance to all the folks that do click share for us. All the folks over at Medical Association of Georgia want to say thanks so much. You all have been fantastic partners and, and always are introducing us to some excellent guests here on our show to keep the great information flowing out to our listeners. So we really enjoy working with all of those folks. We'll have to have you back sometime. It would be my pleasure. Thank uh, you. There'll be plenty of things to talk about. So uh, appreciate it very much. We'll catch you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 